0: If you're using a church Bible, it's page 901, and in the larger print Bibles, 1401. I'm going to read from Hosea chapter 2, verse 2 down to chapter 3, verse 5. Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who gave me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not find them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first. For then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for bale. Therefore, I will take away my corn when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So not I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the beals. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond, as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the beals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the green, the new wine, and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley, Then I told her, you are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. This is God's word. We'll start with a question. What kind of God do you want? Maybe without even realizing it, the kind of God we want is a God who doesn't get in the way of our personal plans and ambitions. C.S. Lewis said, most of us want a God who will support us in whatever it is we like to do. We would like a God, Lewis says, whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Part of our problem is that we want too little from God. God has a glorious destiny in mind for us. He wants to give us the perfect joy that can only be found in Him. He wants us to experience the eternal pleasures that can only come through relationship with Him. God has all that in mind for us but we'd rather he would just back us up as we chase the life we've designed for ourselves. Lewis goes on to say, when we want God to support our own agenda, then we are really wishing that God would love us less. He loves us enough to give us the best. But we would prefer it if he just gave us what we wanted. Well, in the book of Hosea, we meet the God who loves us too much to give us what we want. We began looking at this last week. In Hosea chapter 1, we saw that God told Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. Hosea is going to be God's messenger to Israel and Judah. And he's going to announce God's message not only in words, but also through his own life. Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife is going to be a living illustration of God's relationship to an unfaithful people. And we read in chapter 1 about Hosea's marriage to a lady called Gomer. We read about the three children Gomer gave birth to. And it was unclear whether all those children were Hosea's or not. And the pain and betrayal Hosea suffered was a picture of the betrayal suffered by God. The people of Israel and Judah could look at Gomer and they could see their own unfaithfulness to God. And we also noticed last week the unfaithfulness of Israel is the unfaithfulness of all humanity. Through his promises to Abraham, God committed himself to bless all peoples on earth. Like a bridegroom, God has promised, I will. But like an unfaithful bride, all of us have turned to other lovers. And the question is, how will God respond? Will he wash his hands of us? The answer is no. In Hosea chapters 2 and 3, we see God's jealous love. And we might see that word in the middle there and immediately wonder, isn't jealousy a bad thing? Well, it can be. And today, we mainly use the word in a negative way. We use it today almost like another word for envy. So if somebody does well, if someone has nice things and their neighbor wants those things for himself, we might say the neighbor is jealous. But there is another meaning to the word jealousy. It's the sense of wanting to protect something good. So for example, if another man takes a fancy to my wife, if he starts showing up on our doorstep with flowers for my wife and wanting to take my wife out to romantic dinners with him, in that situation, it is entirely right for me to act in a way that is jealous for my marriage. It's right for me to want to protect the exclusivity of my relationship with my wife. what would it say about my love for my wife if I opened the door to that other man and offered to watch the kids while he whisked my wife off into the night? You and I need to have that understanding of the word jealousy when we turn to the Bible. Because the God of the Bible describes himself as a jealous God. And what he means is, He is passionate about protecting the exclusive relationship he has with his people. God is not easygoing about other lovers who try and disrupt his relationship with his people. And God's jealousy is a good thing. We can only find true happiness in him. It's loving when he refuses to welcome rivals into his relationship with us. And in the passage we read a moment ago, we're shown three characteristics of God's jealous love. First of all, God's jealous love shows us the emptiness of life without him. A moment ago I said it would be right of me to be jealous if another man tried to take my wife out. In my case, i tell him to get lost and I would help him on his way down our front steps from where he can. That would be an appropriate response coming from an appropriate jealousy for my marriage. And in my case, it's also what my wife would want me to do. She'd be pretty devastated if I opened the door and showed the guy in. But imagine another situation. A situation where the husband feels appropriate jealousy, but his wife wants to go off with the rival. She's interested in him. She's eager to experience a relationship with him. What does the husband do then? Well, no doubt he would slam the door and he would plead with his wife. But what if she was determined to go? What if she climbed out of the window during the night to be with this other lover? Well, if she kept on doing that, maybe eventually the husband would do what God promises to do in Hosea chapter 2. God says to Israel, for hundreds of years you have been doing the equivalent of sneaking out the window on me. Again and again and again you've gone after other lovers. You have prostituted yourself to them. And so, verse 2 God says, rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face, and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as in the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land and slay her with thirst. In verse 2, rebuke your mother could be translated plead with your mother. That's probably the better translation because it's obvious God is looking for a response here. He's not just delivering a put down. God is asking the individual people of Israel to join the prophet Hosea in calling the nation of Israel to repentance. That's what he means by plead with your mother. And when we saw last week, when God says, she is not my wife and I am not her husband, the point is, let's not pretend all is well in our relationship. Israel shows no genuine commitment to me. This marriage is not functioning as a marriage. Israel is always on the lookout for new ways to be adulterous. She has no shame in giving herself to new lovers. God says, that is the state of our relationship. Those are the facts. And if she doesn't put away her adultery, I will withdraw my provision from her. In the Old Testament law, the husband had the responsibility to provide for his wife, to feed her and clothe her. And in verses 3 to 13, God says he will withdraw his provision from Israel. The beginning of verse 3 talks about stripping her naked and making her bare. The second half of verse 3 explains what that means. Israel will become a desolate place, a parched land. God will remove the prosperity Israel has been enjoying for the last few hundred years. And in verse 5, God explains why. Israel thinks all of that prosperity came from her other lovers. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. The other lovers here are probably referring to the Canaanite gods, particularly their god, Beal. The Canaanites were the peoples around Israel, and as they saw things, their view of the world So the earth being like a woman, Baal being the male, and the rain was like his sperm. The rain fell on the earth and made it produce crops. That was their understanding of what happened every year. And the Israelites began to see things that way themselves. Instead of looking to Yahweh, that's the personal name of the God of the Bible, The God who came to Abraham and committed himself to Abraham and his descendants. Instead of looking to the God who had made all those I will promises, Israel began to think Baal was her provider. In verse 8, God says, She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the wine, and oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for Baal. God says, I made Israel prosperous. Those were my good gifts. But Israel took those good gifts and she used them to honor Baal instead of me. Would you and I ever be like this? Well, let's ask, who do we think provides for us? I would guess most people look no further than themselves or their employer or the government. If we're an independent kind of person, we might believe it's our own hard work that provides what we've got. And that makes us proud. We never stop to ask, who was it gave us the health and the energy and the ability and the brains and the opportunities to train and work and earn. Or maybe we think it's our employer who provides for us. In that case, our employer can keep on asking for more and more from us and we'll keep on giving it. Because where would we be without our great provider, the boss? And if we think the government is our provider, if we look to them to make everything right, then we will be devastated if the party we voted for doesn't get in. And even when we get the government we wished for, they will always disappoint us. Because we will have unrealistic expectations of what government actually can provide. Today we might not look to the Canaanite God Beal to provide for us. But as human beings, we're pretty good at finding other Beals. Things that we look to, things we give honor to, when all that we have has actually come from the one true God. What does a loving God do in that situation? Well, one thing God might do is to remove his provision. We've already seen that's what he's going to do in Israel's case. Look down to verse nine. Therefore I will take away my corn when it ripens and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her naked body. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed festivals. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the day she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot. Declares the Lord. All of that is making just one point. Israel's days of prosperity are going to end. Prosperity is going to be replaced with shame and deprivation. Israel has been chasing other lovers for a long, long time. She's convinced they can make her happy and secure. And now Israel is going to discover the inability of those lovers. God is going to stop providing for her and Israel will feel the reality of life without God's care. Is this a loving thing for God to do? Yes. It is a merciful thing when men and women consumed with other things are shown the emptiness of those other things. It is kindness when God pulls back his provision and shows human beings how much they need him. Does it hurt when God does this? Yes. Does it turn our whole world upside down? Yes. Yes. But if God is the only genuine source of joy and security, isn't it loving of him to show us the emptiness of life without him? If God is the one thing in the universe we cannot do without, isn't it good when God shows us the folly of trying to do without him? For the nation of Israel, that will mean Defeat and exile at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC. Today, it might mean an unfaithful nation is brought to its knees economically. It might mean its government is allowed to fall into turmoil. When individuals have forsaken God for other loves, God may remove health or wealth or family. What is the worst state for us to be in? To have turned from God and to be allowed to go on living in prosperity as if it's not a problem to have turned from God. Is that a good situation to be in? When we have turned from God, surely it is for our good to taste the desolation of life without God. I have a friend who comes from a wealthy family. He grew up with everything that wealth could provide. Plus, he was also smart and he was physically strong. He was an athlete. He was a rower and he went to row at Oxford University. He had everything and his attitude was, why would I need God? And then while he was still a teenager, he was paralyzed down one side of his body. I met him a couple of years after that had happened. And as he was explaining it to me, he said, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It showed me the reality of my weakness. It showed me the weakness of all the things I'd been depending on. It showed me that I was lost without God. Not everyone reacts that way to those kind of circumstances. But when men and women have turned their back on God, it is merciful for Him to intervene and show them the emptiness of life without Him. But the message of Hosea doesn't end there. God's jealous love is also a love that wins us back and celebrates with a new creation. Here in Hosea chapter 2, God has just announced he's going to devastate Israel. He's going to let her experience the impotency of her other lovers. But that devastation is not an end in itself. In the next verses, God explains his purpose for doing what he's going to do. Verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Israel has been pictured as an eager prostitute, convinced that true fulfillment lies away from God. God has described how he's going to end that illusion. She's going to taste the bitterness of life without God. But God is not going to leave her like that. The language of verse 14 is the language of romance. God is going to court his estranged wife all over again. I will speak tenderly to her, as literally, I will speak to her heart. But why does God say, I will lead her into the wilderness? How could that be good? Well, in Israel's history, the wilderness was the place where she had her most intimate experience of God. After God brought the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt, The wilderness was the place where he met with Israel. He made himself present in the Israelite camp. He guided Israel with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. The wilderness was the place where God first romanced Israel. And now Israel is going to have a second wilderness experience. This time it's a self-inflicted one. It's going to be the wilderness of exile. God says, however, when you have been brought to your senses in the wilderness, I will meet you there and I will win your heart again. The valley of Acor means the valley of trouble. God says your time of trouble is actually going to become a door of hope. It will be the time when you respond to my advances, just like you did after the exodus. You will forget your other lovers and you'll return to my love. Verse 16, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. This is like a new wedding between God and his bride. There's a play on words in verse 16. The word master is translating the word Baal. Israel had been acting like Baal was her husband. Like Baal was her real provider and lover. But in the future, the only name on her lips will be the name of her true husband, the Lord. You might wonder, when is God going to do this? Was this fulfilled when the exile in Assyria ended? Well, the next verses show us God has something much greater in mind than just a trek back from Assyria. God is thinking of a wedding celebration that even now is still in the future. Verse 18, "'In that day I will make a covenant for them "'with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, "'and the creatures that move along the ground.'" Bow and sword and battle, I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day, I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. And they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This picture is just too surreal to be describing anything in this world. This is a promise of another world. A place where God and his bride live together in perfect relationship. This is describing a new creation. Verse 18 quotes from the account of the first creation in Genesis chapter 1. It's a promise there will be peace between humanity and creation. There will be peace among humanity itself. All will lie down in safety. That's not going to happen in this world. Bow and sword and battle will be abolished. That's not going to happen in this world. God and his people will enjoy a new, perfectly faithful relationship. Derek Kidner says this about the description in verses 18 and 19. Here we have a new beginning with all the freshness of first love rather than the weary patching up of differences. And this new beginning, these wedding vows are going to lead on to a new world. In verses 20 and 21, the word respond is used five times. This is God's response to his new relationship with his bride. He celebrates with a new creation for his bride. And creation itself joins in the celebration. We saw last time the word Jezreel means God sows or God plants. And here, all of God's patient sowing has produced its fruit. Through all the years of human unfaithfulness, God was at work. And here, finally, is the harvest. Those who lived far from God and without his love are now his people, surrounded by his love. And they're satisfied with his love. They say, you are my God. It's a beautiful picture. It's what the book of Revelation describes as heaven come down to earth. It's the future destiny of everyone who turns from their spiritual prostitution and fixes their hope in the living God. But how does God move us from the first half of Hosea 2 into the second half? How does he move us from the situation where the prostitute is chasing her lovers to the point where the prostitute has become the pure, spotless bride lost in the love of her true husband? Well, to see the answer to that, we have to come back down to earth with a bump. We have to leave that vision of the future and see for a moment what the future cost. Hosea chapter 3 tells us God's jealous love pays the price for us. By this point, we've probably forgotten about Hosea and his wife, Gomer, we have been focusing on the bigger reality that was represented by their marriage. But apparently, Hosea's marriage has taken a turn that mirrors the beginning of chapter two. Gomer has left Hosea, and she's gone off after another lover. Her name isn't used here, but I see no reason to suppose this is anybody but Gomer. She's gone, and God says to Hosea, go, Hosea, and get her back. Chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. The obvious question is, what's wrong with raisin cakes? Why mention something so insignificant in such a serious situation? Well, that is the point. This was food associated with worship of false gods. This was one of the perks in Israel's day of giving your love to an idol. You got to eat good cakes at the idol feasts. But the contrast is ridiculous. Israel has forsaken the love of God for the sake of raisin cakes. Stuff that just melts in your mouth. Stuff that's gone when you've barely even got to taste it. And it's equally ridiculous when you or I wander from God to chase trivial things. Whether it's parties or products or promotions or pension plans. In Gomer's case, she wandered from her husband Hosea to chase sex with another man. That was her equivalent of raisin cakes. And God says to Hosea, your love is going to be a miniature display of my love. So go, get your wife back. And Hosea says in verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. That was the price of a slave. Now we realize the lover Gomer chased after has enslaved her. He's become her pimp. And this lover is not going to let his slave go for free. But what Hosea pays for Gomer's freedom is not just a price in cash and goods. Hosea pays a much greater price in personal shame. in buying this woman from the whorehouse and taking her home as his wife, Hosea is making himself contemptible. In this society, he has just made himself a laughingstock. What self-respecting person would lower himself to do that? But don't you see, that's what God did for us. Hosea's love for Gomer is a picture of God's love for us. We were the whore. Enslaved to false lovers who didn't really love us at all. And our freedom cost the life of God's only son. That price would have been amazing enough. But the greatest price Jesus paid was not the physical pain of dying on a cross. It was the shame. The Son of God humbled himself to die the most contemptible death at the hands of his own creation. Executed as a blasphemer and a criminal. Not even worthy of To be executed inside Jerusalem, he had to be taken outside. Laughed at as an idiot by the passers by. The Gospels tell us what they said. He claimed to be the Son of God, but he can't save himself from the cross. What a deluded man. What a loser. but he stayed on the cross to save us. He made himself contemptible to buy us prostitutes back. His death paid for our freedom. It opened the door out of our prostitution and into a new relationship with God. And a new destiny in God's love. Don't miss out on that because you're too proud to admit who you really are. Every Christian is a gomer who has been bought from the whorehouse. Rescued from a life of spiritual prostitution. Don't be too proud to admit who you are. There's too much at stake to let your pride hold you back. The Son of God humbled himself for your salvation. Don't be too proud to receive that salvation. And after we do come to Jesus, what then? Well, our life changes in that moment. We have a new relationship with God and we have a new future ahead of us. And we have to wait for the full enjoyment of that future. That's what Israel is told in the rest of Hosea chapter 3. They will live in a land of exile and God might seem far away from them at times. They'll live in a foreign land, longing for their king. But in the end, God's king will come. You'll notice verse 4 mentions David their king. Now, At this point, David had been dead already for about uh, two or three hundred years. This is about God's promise of a king from the line of David. That king, the New Testament tells us, was Jesus Christ. He's the king the Jews were waiting for all those years. He's the king the Gentiles were waiting for but didn't know they were waiting for. He came for Jews and Gentiles. He rose from the dead and he's coming back for his people. He will bring the full experience of God's blessing and goodness. And until he comes, we have to wait. Looking for his return and living now as his faithful bride. If you and I have come to Jesus, then we are not prostitutes anymore. We are not the property anymore of false abuse of lovers. We know who really loves us and cares for us. So let's show that in our lives. Let's live faithfully this week. Let's live for our true husband. That's the challenge for us. But this message is also a reason for us to give thanks to our God for his love that doesn't walk away. We're going to do that as we sing together now, my Lord, what love is this?